I don't often speak personally in a Bible study. I mean, you guys did not come to church this morning to hear about me, to hear about what God's doing in my life, to hear about my kids. Uh, it's kind of annoying sometimes when you go to church and you get like 20 minutes of what the pastor's up to. Um, you're not interested in that, and so I very rarely will ever speak kind of personally from my life, what God's doing in my life or through my family's life, but this morning I do feel compelled to tell you that this Outlaw Church study, this study of grace, it's been rocking my world, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I don't know if you can sympathize with the sentiment, but while I thought I had a good understanding theologically of what grace was and what it looked like, the implications for my life, man, I was just scratching the surface. In many ways, this study, one of the unexpected byproducts for me is that in gaining a deeper understanding as to the nature of God's grace, it's highlighted and, and I didn't foresee this being a byproduct, but it's highlighted many of the, the ways in which, in my own life, I'll revert to law as opposed to walking in gospel. It's like you, you get a better understanding of grace, and then it just kind of contrasts how frequently it is that we substitute gospel for law. You know, when we think of legalism, it's so easy to place that concept and context to, you know, the restriction of the liberty we have in Christ, Christian liberty. But the reality is that legalism, its effect on our lives is much deeper and broader than just the restriction of liberty. Legalism, the main aim of legalism is not the restriction of Christian liberty, but actually the warping, the twisting, the distorting of our own spiritual lives. Let, let me give you a couple of examples of this. How often is it that we pray something similar to this? God, give me the strength to endure this situation. And, and while that sounds totally normal, understand that perspective is actually warped by legalism. Like instead of praying or asking God, give me the strength. If I fully understand the gospel and what it means, my prayer would instead be something like this, God, may your strength carry me through the situation. You see the difference? It's subtle, but it's still powerful. Legalism. Legalism petitions me to ask God to give me something I think I need. Whereas the gospel, grace, it reminds me I've already been given everything that I need in Christ Jesus. It's not, Lord, give me strength. It's, Lord, help me rely on that strength. Help me recognize that strength. Help me abide in that strength. I'll give you another example. Most people sing songs under the pretense that worship centers itself on pleasing God which once again sounds right. But sadly, this view is warped by the subtle nature of legalism. Instead of, God be pleased with the songs that I sing, if I fully understand the gospel, I'm no longer worshiping to please God. I worship because he's already pleased with me. It's a, it's a change of perspective. Once again, legalism, it subtly connects 
my activities, my behavior, what I do with God's pleasure. Whereas the gospel reminds me that my life should simply flow from the pleasure that I've already been given. God's amazing grace. I don't sing so God's pleased. I sing because he's pleased with me. And that's amazing. Hence why we sing amazing grace. I recently ran across an article posted on christiantoday.com. It's titled, Confessions of a Burned Out Minister. And after writing this article explaining how draining the ministry had become, the author, after kind of taking a sabbatical, regaining perspective, they proceed to list out, quote, 10 things I did to rediscover, to recover and rediscover my calling. 10 things I did. Here's the list, okay? One, maintain an active prayer life. Two, remember for who you are working. Three, surround yourself with co-laborers. Four, do not forget your first love. Five, keep devoted times a priority. Six, learn to say no. Seven, handle criticism with grace. Eight, take time to celebrate victories. Nine, maintain an attitude of humility. Ten, don't give in to grumbling or complaining. The article concludes, quote, After confessing my sin and accepting God's forgiveness, I began to develop a discipline in order to avoid burnout in the future by applying the biblical principles I had learned to my everyday life. I realized that ultimately God wanted my affection and my devotion above all else. This became my first priority. And once again, while on the surface, this seems to be a legit perspective, the truth is that it oozes legalism. Like notice the revealing phrases that literally follow a a list of 10 commandments, okay? Here's 10 commandments. And then these two phrases, I began to develop a discipline. God wanted my affection and devotion above all else. Now, the remedy to this problem we refer to as burnout for this person Notice the remedy to it was a list of things, 10 in particular, they needed to do in order to develop a discipline. For what purpose? So that they could then please God and demonstrate their devotion to God. You see it? You see the problem? Like, like here's why a list like this is so dangerous it fails. It falters because it fails to fundamentally address the problem. If you're burned out, the only remedy to that is the gospel. The reality that God is totally cool with you. He's pleased with you. You don't have to do anything else for God to be satisfied in you. As a matter of fact, the gospel says he's more interested in you enjoying his affection than receiving yours. That's the gospel. Sadly, this person will end up joining the 90% of others who ultimately drop out of the ministry. That's a true stat, by the way. Because legalism will always rob you of the joy that God's grace is designed to provide. This is what was happening in Galatia. Like, this is what was taking place below the surface. 
Not only had they begun to slide from grace into legalism, but this mindset, this merit-based gospel, this earning, this doing, then receiving and enjoying, what it had done is it had begun to rob the Galatians of joy. It had begun to, to reap a tragic effect. Look at Galatians 4, verse 15. It's not where we'll start this morning, but it does provide a very telling and insightful question. Paul asked the Galatians. He says, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? Like literally, in the Greek, what Paul is asking is he's asking, quote, where has your blessedness gone? Paul is pointing out that their lack of joy, this rut, this inactivity, this tiredness should have been evidence that something was awry, that something was wrong. Understand, burnout only occurs in our flesh and can never be attributed to God's spirit. God's spirit never burns out, friend. It's an oil that keeps burning and burning and burning, and it supernaturally refills itself. Burnout is the flesh, never God's spirit. In actuality, quote, getting burned out, it can be a good thing because it's often God's way of revealing to you the reality that your reliance for all things spiritual has been in your flesh fed by legalism and not in God's spirit promoted by the gospel, fueled in God's grace. Burnout and the lack of joy, you know, joy that is characteristic of the indwelling spirit of God, you know, one of the fruits of this joy. When these things happen, when you're feeling burned out, when, you're, when you don't have joy in your spiritual experience, it's evidence, friend, for you this morning, that you're falling or slipping or sliding into legalism and are no longer abiding or living in the gospel. Verse 21 of chapter 4, Paul says to them, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? To be under the law. It, it, this is Paul's way to be under something. It's Paul's way of describing someone under the authority of the law who is therefore now dependent upon the law. This is what Paul means by that statement, under the law. In this case, Paul is referring to the Galatian, the person who sees the law, the things we do or we don't do for God as being the basis for not only their justification or being right with God, but also their sanctification or moral living. Paul concedes the reality that there were people in Galatia hearing this letter who were in actuality desiring that particular arrangement as opposed to the one founded upon God's grace. So in addressing these people, Paul challenges the silliness of desiring to be justified or sanctified by the law. He says, do you not hear the law? You clean out your ears. Do you not hear it? The law, if you understand the law, if you read the law, if you comprehend the law, 
it clearly states that it has no power whatsoever to save, yet alone perfect. It's like Paul saying, you who desire to be on the law, did you not read the disclosure and the fine print at the bottom of the page? You're looking for it to do something it never told you it would do or could do. You're using it in a way it was never designed to be used. And it's in line with this point that it's important for us to just take a moment and set up an idea that really establishes kind of a concept that will play itself out through the rest of the letter to the Galatians. And here's the idea. While grace is undoubtedly free for the receiver, it's free for you. And it's costly to the giver. It costs Jesus everything. And it indeed comes, grace, with no strings attached. Most misconceptions concerning grace can be traced back to one detail so often overlooked. The condition of the receiver. Hey, it's free. It costs God everything. It comes no strings attached. But we fail to recognize the condition in the heart of the person receiving God's grace. Like, Let me explain. Some reason that people resist receiving God's grace out of a fundamental inability to admit their need for help. That admitting I need help is the condition we need to accept or receive the gospel. And while that sounds nice, there's a problem with that. Pastors will plead, you can't live this life on your own. You'll hear them say, Jesus, Jesus is ready to help. He's more than able to clean up your mess. He'll help you when you're weak. He'll make you strong with Christ. You can do all things, right? You you hear these things, and that sounds good, but here's the problem with it. While religion is more than willing to help you, grace has no such interest. I know that sounds weird, but grace is not interested in helping you cross the finish line. It's not interested in giving you strength. Whereas legalism will jump at the opportunity to help you out, and in most instances, will even use Jesus to accomplish that aim. Grace is not interested in helping you do a thing. Instead, grace is more interested in fundamentally changing you, transforming your internal constitution. Since transformation is the goal of grace, it requires a condition and the receiver much deeper than simply admitting a need for help. You see, grace, it's only useful to the person who's actually given up. The person who's thrown in the towel the person at the end of their rope, at the end of the line, the person at the end of themselves, Because grace is a spiritual birth, it's a spiritual life birth following the death of self. Grace can only be received once self can no longer be helped on account that it's been reckoned dead. The condition grace needs in the receiver is death. 
the end of self. Like in much the same way that a caterpillar must die before it can be transformed, this metamorphosis can occur where it changes into a butterfly, while the gospel possesses the incredible power to transform, its life-giving power can only be initiated when the person who receives it has first laid down and died to themselves. As C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Grace. Grace doesn't demand you, the receiver, admit a need for help. That's the ploy of legalism. Grace demands the receiver instead cry out to God for life. Realize this morning, you don't need help. You need a savior. Like you don't need help. You need to die and have the Spirit of God come inside of you and live and transform and change you. Legalism wants to help. Grace wants to change you. Not your sufficiency through Jesus, but grace employs his sufficiency and strength instead of yours. And there are two implications to this reality. First, as we've noted, because the gospel isn't interested in helping you and demands the death of the receiver, many actually prefer the law instead of grace. They gravitate towards legalism instead of the gospel. Death is a tough thing. Sadly, because of that demand, it's true what Thomas Watson said, that Christ went more willingly to the cross than we do to the throne of grace. In regards to the second implication of this reality, let's, let's dive back into our text, verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. Pause. Before we get to the particulars of our text, which I'm just going to kind of let you know in advance, are some of the most complex, not just in Galatians or the New Testament, but in all honesty, and the whole Bible. But before we get to it, it would be helpful for you to understand the central point that Paul will be making in this passage, which is the second implication of this reality. And note, not only is Paul introducing to us, the audience, the reader, a new concept, he will build upon this concept throughout the rest of Galatians. And it's this concept that is essential to our battle against legalism in our spiritual lives. Here's the second implication. If death to self is central to receiving God's grace, then it's impossible for myself to then coexist with his spirit. Self, let's define that. My efforts in the flesh to fulfill God's purposes, often using the law, self, cannot coexist with the Spirit, which is God fulfilling His purposes supernaturally through grace. When it comes to being a righteous person before God, 
when it comes to doing the right things. I have these options. I can either rely on myself, meaning I don't need God's help, and fall prey to a legalistic rut, or I can rely on his spirit, which means God doesn't need mine. But friend, you cannot rely on both. And and to make this point theologically, scripturally, Paul takes us back, as he's done before, to the life of Abraham. Note, though Paul has said, for it is written, only to later affirm these things are symbolic, Paul is not saying the story he recounts from Genesis didn't occur historically. What Paul is rather saying is that these actual historical events he'll describe in Genesis, things that happen in the life of Abraham, present a picture of a powerful and profound spiritual truth. That's what he's explaining here. And he begins, look at it again. Abraham had two sons. The one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. It's important to point out in the Greek, bondwoman, free woman, can be translated simply as out of bondage or out of freedom. The reason that we have you know, woman attached to the word is that in the Greek, both words are presented in the, the feminine tense. Thus, we have bondwoman, free woman, out of bondage, out of freedom. Now, very quickly, I just need to recount a very broad stroke the story that Paul kind of already assumes his audience is familiar with. Now, he doesn't give us a lot of the backstory. I don't want to assume that you already have the backstory. So very quickly, in the book of Genesis, God called out a man, a pagan, by the name of Abraham, who was living at the time in a town Ur of the Chaldeans. They would become the Babylonians. And God called this man out, promising to lead him to a promised land called him out of the world to lead him to a land of promise, him and his wife, Sarah. They make their way to the land of promise. And what occurs is that God comes back to Abraham and says that it would be through his family that God would grow a mighty nation. And it would be through that nation that God would bless the world. Now, prophetically, what's being communicated, as we've already seen in Galatians, is that God was saying through Abraham's lineage would come a savior who would save the world from sin. Thus, one from that nation, this seed coming through the Hebrew people would be used by God to save the world, bless all the nations, that being Jesus. So the promise, very simple, I'm gonna grow your family into a mighty nation. From that nation will come a savior to save the world from sin. Now there was just one problem. Abraham and Sarah had no children. And part of the promise, an essential component of the promise would be that Abraham and Sarah would have a son. Thus, from that son would grow a nation. The catch, not only are they not able to have children, but even when the promise was originally given, they were already advanced in years beyond childbearing. So this was a, a decision of faith. And for years, they waited for the promise. And I'm paraphrasing We're flying through chapters in Genesis. Sarah gets a little impatient. She comes to Abraham. He says, I'm not not getting any younger. You're not getting any younger. God made this promise and we believe in this promise. But let's take matters into our own hands. 
And I've got this, this hot handmaiden, her name's Hagar, this Egyptian beauty. And why don't you sleep with her and have a child through her that will be ours? Abraham, you know, as any man, jumps at the opportunity. There's no resistance on the part of Abraham. You're cool with that? Yeah, it's my idea. You're, fun. you're, you're sure. Yeah, I'm, this is what you need to do. All right, let's do it. Never, that doesn't work, friend, by the way. This is a terrible idea. But Abraham sleeps with Hagar and she gets pregnant and she ends up having a son whose name is Ishmael. Now, now we'll kind of pause in the story um, because what ends up happening is that uh, God's like, yo, w- w- that's not cool. Like I made a promise, your lack of faith that I can't fulfill my, how about this? And what happened? Sarah gets pregnant, right? And has Isaac. Okay, so here we have this picture. Two women, one man, two women, two sons. Now, in defining the symbolic nature of these events, Paul, in this instance, in this passage, he's contrasting, right? Abraham's son, Ishmael, who, quote, was born of the bondwoman, that being Hagar, born, as Paul says, according to the flesh, Abraham's efforts to fulfill God's promise. He contrasts Ishmael then with Isaac, quote, who was born of the free woman, that being Sarah, quote, born through promise, not Abraham's involvement, but God's supernatural involvement. So you're following with the symbolic nature of what's taking place here, great. Now, Paul's point is to highlight here the symbolic nature of each boy, each child. Ishmael was born according to the flesh. Abraham's desire to take matters into his own hands when it came to fulfilling the promises of God. Whereas Isaac's birth could only be attributed as nothing more than God supernaturally fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Abraham is old, Sarah is barren. So Isaac is born how? Not through the flesh, a work of man, but instead a work of God or born through promise. Verse 24, jump back into the text. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. So you get all that? We good? We could just move right on? No. Like that's kind of complex. Like, well, Ishmael, right? Put on your thinking cap. Got to track with me. Ishmael and Isaac, while these two boys were the result of two different approaches Abraham made when it came to fulfilling God's promises, Paul now continues to explain that these two approaches, Ishmael and Isaac are the results, the two approaches were symbolic of, quote, two covenants. First, you have Hagar, whom Abraham laid with, to produce the result of Ishmael. While Ishmael represented the result of Abraham's flesh, which is what? His attempt to accomplish God's work apart from God, right? Hagar ends up being what? The mechanism that made this action possible. 
This is why she represents the law. Ishmael, the flesh, bondage, the law is the mechanism. Paul says Hagar is, there's no doubt, Mount Sinai, the location whereby the law originated. And then Paul says, which corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. This word corresponds literally means to march in the same row as, the same row with. Paul's point, Hagar represents the law, which was given at Sinai, and today in which Jerusalem marches it forth. Jerusalem, the temple, it represented the law. Now this covenant of the law, and we've mentioned this before, but we just have to reiterate it. It was a basic agreement between God and man, right? Very simple. As long as you obey me, I'll be your God, you can enjoy the favor as my people. God's favor was dependent upon man's performance, and this was designed for one specific reason. As we've noted, the law existed not to be obeyed or necessarily fulfilled, but to really accentuate man's inability to earn God's favor. There's this standard, and, I, and it's, I gotta obey this standard so I have God's favor, but as much as I try and as hard as I try uh, with all my might, I just fall short all the time. I fall short of the glory of God. I need a savior. I need God's grace. You see, the law was an agreement, in a sense, made to be broken, which is why it came with a sacrificial system geared towards providing atonement. Keep in mind, in this culture, your position and your practical standing did not come from your father, but instead came through your mother. Ishmael represents slavery, bondage, servitude. Why? Because he was born of Hagar, a slave. You see, what Paul is asking is he's asking this. If you, as Abraham, Seek to accomplish God's will in your life through Hagar, your works, your effort, the law, legalism, to fulfill God's purposes, it's only going to result in frustration, bondage, servitude, slavery. But, verse 26, the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now, in order to explain what Paul means in these two verses, which are complex, I find it interesting that while Paul defines the first of these two covenants, specifically doing what? Connecting the bondwoman as being Hagar, right, the law, Paul doesn't make a direct link with the free woman and Sarah, though we know that Sarah was ultimately the mother of Isaac. Like, let me explain why this is the case. Paul connects Hagar and the bondwoman, but doesn't do that with Sarah and the free woman. It would appear that while Hagar played a very specific role in facilitating Abraham's desire to accomplish God's work in his life apart from God's direct involvement, right? She did. She played a role. She slept with Abraham. 
The same can't be said for Sarah. Now, now how can you make that, that, that leap? Think about it. Not only was Sarah beyond childbearing years, but her and Abraham's inability to have a child was a result of a flaw within Abraham or Sarah. It's clear that the flaw was actually in Sarah, that Sarah was the one that was barren. How do we know that? Because when Abraham was able to take to bed Hagar, his soldiers had no problems marching. That's what it's saying. No problems with Hagar. Meaning the problems with Sarah were not Abraham, right? But whom? Sarah. Which is why there's not this direct link. It would appear Paul instead contrasts Hagar with what? The Jerusalem above, which he then says is free and the mother of us all. In referring to heaven, or the Jerusalem above, Paul is stating the promised life born to us as illustrated, right, by Isaac, which he means by the mother of us all, is a work brought forth through only what? God's direct and specific involvement. It wasn't Sarah. Whereas it might have been Hagar, it wasn't Sarah. It was purely and 100% a work of God. Now, this would explain why Paul then quotes from Isaiah 54, verse 1. I'll read it again. Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. In this passage, Isaiah the prophet is reminding a group of Jews who have been dispersed that even when you have no chance of bearing life and all hope seems lost, very similar to the plight of Sarah, right? God still has the ability to bring forth life anyway. Now, before we continue, let's just kind of recap, right? Very quickly, there was a lot there. Abraham uses Hagar, which results in Ishmael. This is all symbolic of God's promises not being fulfilled by the flesh and that the law only yields bondage. Then Paul says, God conceives a child for Abraham using Sarah, which results in Isaac. Note, symbolic of the reality that God's promises are supernaturally fulfilled by grace, his favor, and thus only yields freedom. Verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. If you notice, he transitions here. Now we, clearly turning the page to the application for us of all of this symbolism. He affirms, if you look at it, as Isaac was, we are children of promise, born how? According to the flesh? No, according to the spirit. What Paul means by this is that our spiritual birth, like Isaac's physical one, was entirely miraculous. It was completely a work of God, a work of his spirit. In our lives, independent of our involvement, one that only required barrenness or death, 
and the receiver, illustrated by Sarah. Notice what Paul says next, and this is where everything kind of begins to come together. But as he, who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, even so it is now. Here's Paul's point. The flesh. Whatever is born in our lives through the, through the law, Hagar, the flesh will never get along with the spirit or what is born in our lives through God's grace. The flesh will never get along with the spirit. Understand, there are two ways you can apply this, one corporately, but then one personally. It's true, right? It's as true in Paul's day as it is in ours, that religious people, people that are earning God's favor, working for God's favor, who wear the mantle of effort and strength, resilience, religious people don't get along with people who are simply walking in the freedom of God's grace. Isn't that a truth? Have you ever encountered the legalist? And here you are walking in freedom and walking in grace, and they don't like you because you threaten something. Like it's simply a truth that favor over performance makes any performer furious and hostile towards the favor. In this instance, Paul is making it clear that Ishmael, what the flesh produced, was hostile to whom? Isaac, what the Spirit gave. And yet, while we understand this in a broad sense, there is a more personal application. And here it is. Your flesh, or any attempt to fulfill God's work in your life apart from God's direct involvement, will be in constant tension with God's spirit or his supernatural working to fulfill his promises in your life. When you try to take the reins and do what God has promised on your own, that will always stand in tension and resistance to what God wants to do through his spirit in your life. Self or spirit. You see, this explains why Paul is waging this war against legalism. Yes, he's ticked off about the restriction of, of Christian liberty and how it makes a mockery of the cross and, 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 and it's an insult to what Jesus did on our behalf. But Paul's waging this war mostly because he knows that legalism, it feeds our flesh, which has a terrible byproduct in our lives because not only is it not the solution, it takes us away from the solution. It feeds an alternative that isn't an alternative, but a knockoff. You need the spirit. Legalism feeds the flesh, which robs you of the very thing you need. More and more and more and more of his spirit. This is why Paul is so geeked out here. Verse 30. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So Ishmael's born to Hagar's, living in Abraham's house. He's a son of Abraham. This is all good till Sarah comes up pregnant and then ends up having Isaac. 
supernaturally, the son of promise. And according to Genesis chapter 21, there's tension. Tension between the boys, tension between the mothers. It's a divided household. It's chaos. And what ends up happening? Abraham ends up having to tell Hagar and Ishmael to leave. He casts them out. Now, I'm not going to get into all the particulars of that for another day. But this is what Paul is referring to. Because they can't get along, and there's this tension between what represents the flesh and what represents the spirit. The only remedy is to cast away the flesh. Paul says these things represent the reality that because Ishmael and Isaac, law and grace, flesh and spirit, cannot coexist without strife and constant tension, we must cast out the bondwoman and her son. As soon as Isaac was born, it was essential Ishmael be cast away. Please understand, if you're feeling this morning burned out, if your Christian experience, if it lacks joy, the problem, it's not that you're not working hard enough or doing enough. The problem is that you're slipping into legalism and you're not walking in God's grace and his spirit. Instead of dying to self, instead of just trusting that God will work his plan, supernaturally in your life, through his spirit, by his grace, like these Gentiles. If you're feeling this way, you're stepped out of the spirit. You're walking in the flesh. You're looking for a natural remedy to yield what can only be a spiritual result. And yet, what makes this experience so frustrating is that as Abraham illustrates, please understand this because it sets the stage for the rest of what Paul will talk about in Galatians. It's essential for your understanding. The flesh can only birth more flesh. The natural, only that which is natural. Sin, what is sinful. Bondage only produces more bondage. Friend, you need to know this morning that it is only through the Spirit of God that a spiritual life can be born or continued in. Only an eternal being can speak eternal life. It's only via a supernatural mechanism that a supernatural result can be attained. And isn't that what you need? Only God can birth godliness. Only those who are born into freedom can truly be free. Today, many find themselves frustrated because legalism not only births an imitation of the life that God promised, but that this imitation, this knockoff, this Ishmael, leaves no room for the genuine. When it comes to being a righteous person before God, when it comes to doing the right things, you can either rely on self, I don't need God's help, or you can rely on his spirit, he doesn't need mine. But friend, you can't rely on both. The flesh and the spirit live in constant tension 
They don't work together. They don't want to work together. They won't. Understand, the product of God's grace cannot live with the product of your flesh. If you attempt to manage that unholy union, well, you'll feel burned out in a hurry and your life will lack the joy the Spirit wants to yield. One has to go so that the other can flourish. Now the question remains, right? The logical question. How do we then cast out the flesh? Well, Paul will get to that in chapter 5.